Okay, so uh, what we are going to talk about this morning um, will be revealed in this first passage here. So it also forced all people, this is Revelation chapter 13, 16 to 18, it also forced all people, and I'm going to talk about what the it is in a moment, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and that number is 666. You feel in a... It's a <laughs> I don't know how the timing goes with uh, the first day in a new government and we're doing this, but anyway, <laughs> please don't read anything into that. I didn't know when uh, Scott was going to call the election. Um, so the it is uh, a beast, a beast that um, I've got to do a little bit of uh, sort of explaining for us to get to. I've shown this image before. It is uh, a drawing of something that Daniel saw, some beasts that he saw. And you might remember, uh, if you have been with us at all for this journey, um, that I used this picture and this section of Daniel where he sees these beasts um, to kind of ground uh, a truth about the way that prophetic literature uses imagery and particularly imagery of beasts. So in the Bible, a beast is generally an empire, a kingdom or an empire, and um, specifically a human empire. So uh, we also looked at a picture a bit like this at one stage in the series. That's Nebuchadnezzar there. There's a connection between a beastly empire and an emperor who was a beast, uh, the Bible uses this image of a beast uh, for an empire to kind of speak to how the Bible understands what goes on when human beings try to kind of grasp power and use it in a way that isn't in line with God's heart. So the kingdom of God is a kingdom of justice, of love, of all those good things. Um, however, human kingdoms which set themselves up in the face of God, tend to beastliness. Human hearts can tend to beastliness. Human kingdoms, it makes sense, tend to beastliness. So when we're reading about beasts in the book of Revelation, it's empire language or kingdom language. And um, here's a interesting uh, little bit of art from the Middle Ages. It's depicting one of these beasts, these beasts from Revelation that we just began to read about. So um, what's going on in this picture here, to give us a bit of context, uh, this section which talks about the mark of the beast starts out uh, around about here, though it's all very connected, and it says that there was a great dragon who was hurled down, and John says this dragon... He sort of explains this part of the vision for us. This dragon was the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan 
who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels were hurled with him. So that's pretty clear. What's going on in the passage that we're looking at this morning is, and you can see uh, in this image, that the dragon is interacting with this beast that we're going to talk about. So Revelation 13, 1 to 2 says the dragon, so that's uh, Satan, John tells us, stood on a shore of the sea. And John says he saw a beast coming out of the sea which had ten horns and seven heads. Uh, It's weird, isn't it? It's just weird. Ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horn and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast that John saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The the great dragon, John says, he saw gave his power and his throne to the beast. So just to flick back there, you can see a picture of that. Satan is giving a scepter, <laughs> like a, a symbol of authority to rule, to a worldly empire, we can probably pretty safely assume. I hope you're not having dreams like this. So the dragon gives the beast his power, his throne and great authority. Just flicking forward a bit there. So we've gone from verses 1 to 2 to verses 7 to 8, just for the sake of time. Please, you know, I've encouraged you many times to read this for yourself and be confused for yourself. Uh, It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them and it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So last time I was speaking about Revelation, you might remember I pulled up short of talking about the Lamb who was the only one worthy to open the seals Opening the seventh, well, I didn't get to the seventh seal. Once the seventh seal is opened, it's like all, actually is an appropriate use of the idiom, all hell breaks loose. Uh, A whole heap of bad stuff happens, and this is um, some of what's kind of riding on uh, the lamb finally opening the seventh seal. So there are some people in the earth at this stage, this moment that John foresees, that are sort of sealed to the Lamb. They are the Lamb's people. They are subjects, perhaps we might like to think of it, of the Lamb's kingdom. And the beast is not well disposed to them. And here's a little picture of this charming... Um, I'll get to it in a minute. Anyway, so the the story here involves Satan, a dragon, giving authority to a beast, which is a worldly empire. And um, what we're going to see here is a third figure comes into uh, the mix. One thing to think about, uh, if you think about this weird-looking creature uh, and then these weird-looking creatures, um, people have suggested that 
this beast that so this sort of this special empire that Satan gives his power to is a bit of a mashup, really. Um, so in this picture, uh, that weird guy there with the ten horns is is generally understood by Jews and Christians to be a picture of Rome. This guy shares some of the same imagery in terms of the number of horns and that kind of stuff, but it's just been combined with pictures of other empires. So other beastly empires. Um, you might sort of think that this is an indication of the fact that this beast that the serpent or the dragon or Satan is giving his authority to is kind of like a super empire almost. It's a mashup of a whole heap of other empires that John's audience might have been familiar with. Anyway, to get back to here. So we've got a dragon, Satan, giving authority to a beast that's a mashup of empires. And then John says, I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beef beast, so the super empire beast, uh, on its behalf. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So there's that pretty guy. That's the beast that, <laughs> the second beast. Satan gives authority to the first beast, which is a mashup of empires. The, second, the first beast gives authority to a second beast. A weird one that looks somehow like a has lamb's horns, it says. This is a terrible picture. I, I, I kind of feel like I could start a collection of bad apocalyptic art, and this would be in it. But I picked it just because <laughs> it's got all three figures in it. It was really hard to find uh, a picture that had the dragon, the, the super empire beast, and then this other beast that follows on. Okay, I, I just am trusting that you're not quite as traumatised as I was putting this together. You get the picture. <laughs> and it's a bad one. <laughs> so, the... The number, the mark of the beast, correlates to this beast. And it calls for wisdom, but the actual number which this mark consists of, which enables people to buy and sell, um, is 666. It's so ominous, and I don't know why. Now... One of the things that we've come back to time and time again in this series is that John is a Jew who's paying his Jews. He's a Jew who has interest in prophetic literature, who stands in the line of the prophets. And so he's using the language of Jewish prophets. And so it's always, always, always worthwhile going and finding whether any of the other prophets have said anything like what John is saying, if it's confusing. And there is examples. I just picked a couple here, one from inside the Bible and another one I'll show you in a minute. 
that kind of use this mark language. So this is from Ezekiel. This is from a weird vision that Ezekiel had, and it was, again, sort of for, uh, for telling some judgment that was going to come. Um, and this is uh, w- words that were said uh, in this vision. Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on their foreheads, on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. Slaughter the old men, the young women, the, the, the young men and women, the mothers and the children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Sort of flips the revelation thing in, in, in a way, uh, because this mark is a mark that protects the people who um, are sort of disturbed at the way the world is going. I've got another and and a parallel there really is if you think about the Passover, right? So that actually ties directly to this image of Jesus as the conquering little lamb. So blood over the houses of those who were spared God's judgment when he he judged the evil empire of Egypt. This is a passage that you won't find anywhere in your Bibles. Um, Sometimes some Jewish uh, versions of like the sacred scriptures contained this book, the Psalm of Solomon. But I've put it in here because I think it's interesting. It actually dates from the time that Rome sort of took over Israel. And so it's very likely that Jews of John's time were reading this kind of literature and thinking this way. And look what this uh, psalm of Solomon says. For God's mark is on the righteous for salvation. Famine and sword and death will be far from the righteous. For they will flee from the saints. It sounds very much like John, actually, doesn't it? They will, or f- like the revelation. For they will flee from the saints like those pursued by war. So here's this mark of the righteous thing, but let's go on. But they will pursue sinners and overtake them. For those who act lawlessly will not escape the Lord's judgment. They will be overtaken as by experts in war because the mark of destruction is on their forehead. So that sounds a lot actually like what John's talking about here in Revelation 13. It's a common idea then is the point that I'm trying to make. People thought about empires. They thought about God's wrath. They thought about being sealed or saved by God or sealed or, and you know, loyal to an empire in this language of Mark. It's not completely novel to John's revelation. Anyway, there's a number of ideas about what is going on specifically with the mark that John talks about in John 13. The first one, um, that was the least offensive picture of a human being branded that I could find or a human branding. Um, But the first one is an allusion to the fact that slaves sometimes in the Roman Empire, and also in the ancient world generally, would be branded like we brand cattle, to sort of say you are the property of someone. And in fact, there's some, uh, some evidence that, uh, that this either may have taken place for Jews in Egypt during the time of the Roman Empire or was a thought that was considered. But it's kind of a confronting thought, isn't it, that you would be branded and sort of uh, marked as the property 
of someone. Another thing that could be going on with this talk of the mark of the beast in Revelation 13 um, is a connection to uh, the idea that for important transactions to take place, uh, an imperial seal had to be on any kind of document that listed a sale or uh, you know, to, if you wanted to buy something or sell it in the same way that, you know, if you get a mortgage, uh, our banking system's underwritten by the authority of, of our country. So if you were doing something that um, you, you needed to kind of ground in terms of the rulership of the empire that you that you were working in, sometimes those sorts of important transactions had a seal stamped on them. Um, and that is actually a, a seal uh, for sealing, a wax seal on the right there that dates back to the time of the Roman Empire. So you can see some allusions there, some connections to the idea that you, know, you might have to have a mark in order to buy or sell. Some people have also suggested that what could be going on here is an allusion to Romans to Rome's currency, right? So this is a coin from the time of Nero, um, who was a contemporary of uh, the literature that we're looking at. Handsome guy there, uh, isn't he? Should have grown a beard, that bloke. Um, <laughs> so this idea that, you know, Rome is an evil empire in John's time, they're persecuting the Christians, to even engage in the economy, you're kind of trading somehow off the empire. There's a picture of the emperor. In fact, we'll talk about it in a moment, but lots of people suggested maybe this guy was the beast because he was so anti-Christian. And that kind of has a logic to it, right? Just to participate in the economy is somehow to be um, subject to the evil empire. Another really interesting suggestion that... So these are really the four major suggestions that the scholars look at. Um, is this. Now, I just need to check my pronunciation here. Because these are called uh, phylacteries. Um, so I'm not sure if you've ever seen this, but it's a Jewish custom where... Um, little bits of the Torah, passages of the Torah, are kind of strapped or bound to the body of the observant Jew. Um, so there's a historical picture there, and there's a contemporary picture of a, a soldier in the IDF. Not particularly um, practical combat wear, is it? But there you have it. And this idea comes from a, a, a variety of places in the Old Testament, but here's an example from Deuteronomy 6. So these commandments, this is God speaking to his people, these commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So the suggestion is that, you know, in the same way that God gifted his people his word, an instruction for life, a way of keeping them living in accordance with his will, that the one who would set himself up against God would kind of 
parody that <laughs> or would find a way of kind of undermining that, doing it differently, getting people to, you know, have on their foreheads and their arms or their hands something which is anti-God or anti-Christ in nature. And um, there is a lot of discussion around which of those four uh, interpretations kind of fits best. And actually, there's good reasons why all of them uh, are maybe just a little bit uh, different. There's good reasons why the case isn't closed on it. They all kind of offer something interesting in terms of interpretation, but they all also have points that detractors would uh, sort of suggest that maybe it's not exactly the same thing. How often have we come across that sort of thing in the book of Revelation? Many, many times. Well, the hope that we might have of interpreting it could be that this number will mean something to us because it says it is the name <laughs> of the significant person in question here. 666. It says it needs wisdom, it needs interpretation. But here it is, 666, a number representing a name. Um, now, full disclosure, getting to this, I feel like uh, the people who are most sure about this are the least reliable witnesses generally. Uh, if you interpret this boldly, you're bound to sell a lot of books. Uh, all the people who I've read who really, really have invested their life in understanding Revelation in its context and in the tradition of the church, I mean, I'm being more candid than I sometimes uh, am with you guys here, but I'm just, I'm just going to say it. They pull up short, actually, of interpreting this because it's vague. It's not, um, it's, it's not easy to pin down. So I'm just putting that out there. I, I personally would be a little bit suspicious if someone tells you they know what this means. Nevertheless, let's just have a look at a few aspects of what might be going on. So you guys are familiar with square numbers, I'm sure. Um, I never really understood why square numbers were so significant that we spent a whole year at school just learning about them because, yeah, sure, interesting that you can square numbers and find the square root. Um, I haven't really used that that much in life, but maybe that speaks to the life I live. Anyway, you're familiar uh, with how you can kind of multiply a number by itself, and it's like the shape of a square there. So one by one is one, two by two is four, three by three is nine. Three four, <laughs> okay, sure. You weren't my maths teacher. Thank you, Graham, for pushing me along there. Uh, this is probably more significant to people in the, in the first century than it is to most of us, definitely to me. But actually, ancient peoples loved this stuff, uh, the Jews in particular. 666 is a triangle number. Did you know that was a thing? So there you go, a triangle number. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but it's possibly significant. Um, some people have suggested that, you know, John obviously is standing in this prophetic tradition. Numbers are really important. He uses the number seven a lot, and there's an association between God and the number seven, complete, uh, completeness and the number seven. Uh, again, 
the suggestion is maybe, and also Jews sort of repeated things for emphasis. So to say holy, holy, holy is just a is 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 a way of saying the most holy. Um, to say seven 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 is like this is really seven. Um, so the suggestion that six 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 is again like a kind of a bit of a parody, a negative parody of something that's significant to God. It's also cool that it makes a triangle. It's also potentially interesting. John talks a lot about thirds, right? So, uh, you know, a third of the people on the earth undergo this and whatnot. That this is about as close as um, a third of a thousand, two-thirds of a thousand, as you're going to get without pulling out your calculator that you don't yet have in the first century. So that's maybe something as well. Uh, And... There was one other thing I was going to say about that, but it's just evaded me. It was another thing that was going to lead me to say, sure, I don't, I don't really get it. Um, I've read lots and lots about it, and people don't really land anywhere really solid with that. But there you have it. Maybe it's kind of making fun of God somehow. It's an interesting number. Uh, it's got some sort of numeric significance uh, in Revelation, it would seem. Another thing that people suggest is often going on, and there's lots of variations of this, um, but uh, Hebrew uh, has this thing where letters in the Hebrew alphabet have numeric uh, properties. And so um, the suggestion that somehow 666 is like an answer <laughs> to um, a bit of a word and number game, maybe all you wordle freaks, can spend some time doing this rather than wasting 15 minutes every day on Wordle. And uh, don't think too hard about what's on the screen there, but what's happened there is uh, the Latin name for Nero Caesar has been translated into Hebrew and there's actually apparently two ways that you can write uh, Nero Caesar in Hebrew, translated from Latin. Why that's significant is one of them adds up to 666, as you can see there, and one of them adds up to 616. Um, and why that's interesting is there are some, manus- some, some, some copies of John's Revelation in circulation from the time that instead of saying 666, say 616. Uh, And the suggestion by some scholars is that this could be evidence that the riddle was sort of solved. And so the the population of of Christians who are engaging with this letter, when they maybe copied one from 666 to 616, kind of put a little sign there by changing it to 616 to kind of go, actually, here's a clue as to what the 666 might mean, because it also means the same thing as 616. Now, that's an interesting idea. Again, it doesn't, you know, there's not, there's not really solid scholarly consensus. I can totally understand why first century Jews might have thought that Nero was the Antichrist. I could even entertain the possibility that maybe John's actually talking <laughs> about him. Um, that's a weird idea if John's giving a picture of a super empire and Nero was uh, the leader of an empire that he knew. Um, So 
the idea of the super empire could kind of point to the future. It, it's a little confusing. It could be, could be working across time periods. But all of that to say, the 666 thing is a bit mysterious and could be interpreted a number of ways. Um, but so much of Revelation is like this, isn't it? Where I think it's fruitful to take us from there, because I really haven't nailed anything down for you. <laughs> I've suggested that it's a significant number, suggested that maybe uh, it points to the Emperor Nero. One thing about that, totally makes sense also, right, that if John is distributing a letter to be read in the context of a hostile Roman Empire... <laughs> that he can't write the name of... If it is Nero, he definitely can't say that. The letter's just not going to get to where it needs to get. And if it does get there, and let's say Rome, you know, crashes in on a bunch of Christians engaging with this letter, and they find this damning document that says that the Emperor Nero, or seems to suggest that the Emperor Nero is sort of the bad guy in their religion... Well, then John knows that they're going to get killed, probably, or tortured. So when he sort of says, this calls for wisdom, uh, when he says, you know, um, let, let, let the reader understand, he's kind of, uh, he's kind of there's, a, there's possibly some plausible deniability in there. <laughs> some sort of, uh, probably saying this, but you can, you can sort of deny, it's, it's abstract enough or unclear enough that um, if first century Christians get busted, they don't necessarily get thrown to the lions. Right. Where I feel like it's edifying to go here, because, um, because this, you know, 2,000 years of argument about this stuff, I, I'd never imagined that we were going to settle it. But in the fashion of this... Uh, series, I do think that we can upskill, we can discern together, uh, we can maybe work out some things that this isn't saying, and that's what I want to do at this point. So, I made a brief comment about how what that Jewish soldier is wearing there isn't particularly practical in terms of combat. Uh, in that little box on his head, are passages from the Torah, God's law to his people, strapped to his hand and his arm there, are passages from the Torah to his people, reminding him whose he is, how he's supposed to live. You know, I don't know if you've been to Israel or you've had much to do with, with Jewish people generally, but not many people actually do that. <laughs> It's kind of a, it's a particular interpretation of that passage from Deuteronomy and others like it, where, um, you know, oftentimes we might read an instruction like that from God saying, you know, make sure that Scripture's everywhere, strap it to your head, strap it to your arms, put it on your doors, which is what he says in Deuteronomy. We might read that and go, well, that's probably figurative language. How am I going to fight in a war with a little box on my head? Evidently, it can be done. But lots and lots of Jews have made a move that I think many of us as Christians make, where they've gone, actually, there's an intent thing there. 
God is giving us figurative language because he wants us to be steeped in his word. Our identity should be so shaped by his word that it's like we just have his word everywhere, right? We as Christians, our equivalent of it might be, well, sure, we could wear a cross everywhere that we went, um, but I wonder how many people here actually wear a crucifix on their body. I'd suggest it'd be the minority. We could um, wear a what would Jesus do bracelet everywhere. There's, uh, we could carry a particularly heavy and impressive leather-bound copy of the right translation of the Bible so that everyone sees us carrying the right translation of the Bible and sees how much we value it. Um, and maybe we do that to an extent. It reminds me a little bit of Graham's message last week where he talked about liturgy, right? Like finding practices that shape us, that speak to us about who God is and who we should be in light of that. We could do all of those things. In this tradition in particular, the Pentecostal tradition, we don't do many of them. <laughs> There's actually probably uh, not many ways that a non-religious person could look at you know any of our lives in terms of like the symbolic content and go well there's Zeke he always wears uh, he's got a huge tattoo of of Jesus on his back or um, (laughs) there's Laura whenever she uh, has to stay a little bit longer at school after dropping the kids off she prays in the same way at the same time in the same place out just outside the school We don't have many of those things, do we? And I think part of the implication of Graham's message is that maybe that's something we need to consider. Like if our life is just formless and not particularly shaped by God's word, it's not a bad idea to have practices that really anchor us in who God wants us to be, that shape our lives, that influence us. The good reason that we have as Pentecostals and many Christians who sort of are in a similar part of the church's tradition to us. The good reason that we have for not doing those things, I wonder if you can guess what it is. I think the best reason why we don't have many of those things is because who knows that you can wear a cross around your neck every day of your adult adult life and be an absolute demon. (laughs) You can abuse your wife, dominate your kids, be the most miserable sad sack to work with. Um, I mean, you're probably also aware of people who have religious symbols on their body, like Christian symbols on their body, who don't even follow Christ. You know, it doesn't actually change anything about who you are or your relationship to God just because you have a symbol on your body. Am I right? Yeah, Yeah, I know. I know I'm right. That's why I said it, but thanks... (laughs) And God knows that. (laughs) He knows that. I could have pulled up uh, many passages to make this point, but the one that just sprung to mind for me as I was preparing this message um, is where David is sort of selected by God to be the king of his people. And um, so Samuel goes down, you know the story... And there's some impressive men in that family. And not (laughs) 
one of them, according to his estimation, is God's man to lead Israel. The Lord says to Samuel, when he's confused about the fact, none of these tall, handsome guys probably looked, you know, like good religious Jews are the one in God's plans. God says, the Lord sees not as we see. For we look on the outside, but God looks on the heart. The reason I take us there is, you know, it's possible that many of the kind of scary ways that you've heard the Mark of the Beast talked about, and I I know about them because I've had people over the last three years come and say, do you think this is the Mark of the Beast? Um, You know, like an injected credit card chip or you know, a vaccine or, you know, variations of those sorts of things. You know, it, there's, it's possible, I guess. <laughs> Maybe it's possible that one of those things is the mark of the beast. But I, I, I'm not so sure. I don't think the Bible actually takes us there. I don't think this passage actually points to that. Because... The way that God works, he doesn't work on the appearance that you hold, but he works on the heart that he knows that you have, right? And it would stretch my imagination (laughs) to the point of breaking that it could be possible for us to live a life where we submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus and his kingdom and find ourselves in a position where we're going to do something to ourselves which completely denies that fact. That's just not going to happen. If God's plan for his people is that we are so marked by the character of Christ that when evil empires rise... (laughs) We can spot them and say, that's not God. I'm not going to let that have a bit of me. We, you know, it just, it's not, it's not, um, it's, it's not really plausible. It's not really plausible. We see so clearly in John the way of God's kingdom rule is the lamb who would suffer and die for his enemies. Any empire which stands against that is going to be doing the opposite. Any empire which stands against the spirit of Christ, the way that Christ rules, is going to be intent on crushing people, (laughs) intent on breaking people, deceptive. We see Christ so clearly in Revelation. John says, this is how God conquers the empires, the evil empires of the world. This is how God wraps history up, by giving himself as a sacrifice. I might get the band up, please, because we're going to finish. (laughs) 
all of that to say, if you're compelled by Jesus, if you want Jesus as your Lord, it's really as simple. <laughs> it's not worrying too much about what's happening to your body. body. Sure, that's important. But it's a matter of the heart, right? It's a matter of a heart aligned with a God who wins by losing. It's a matter of a heart aligned with a God who doesn't repay violence with violence, but gives his life to save those, even those who would kill him. It's a matter of a heart aligned with Jesus who died for you. When we live a life with that as its foundation, I mean, God forbid that we would ever have to follow Christ all the way down that path, but the power is there to do it. Because if evil empires come to God's people and they threaten to crush us, we know that the story doesn't end there. (laughs) We know that our king died and conquered death. And he's promised that to us as well, that death is not the end. And so as God's people, we have assurance that he reigns, he wins, he's got it all in hand. And all we have to do is say, Lord, I want to be a part of that kingdom to follow on in his way. I'm going to leave it there. The band's going to close in worship for us, but I'll just pray for us quickly. Lord, I thank you.